There are many bumps in the road on the way to creating health care that delivers on the promises and commitments we make to patients, especially the promises and commitments that have to do with safety and things going as planned. That's why the concept of continuous improvement is so essential and other concepts such as becoming a learning organization, promoting a just culture and learning from every mistake or near miss. However, it's worth asking whether the improvement movement's progress on patient safety to date is unacceptably uneven, and so much so that something else is needed, something that both shakes up the pace of change and how organizations are going about taking harm out of patient care in some sustainable, reliable way. So if we want zero infections and zero incidents of harm or hospital-acquired conditions, is high reliability the principle and the roadmap to follow? That's what we're going to be discussing on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered biweekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. If you're attending WIHI for the first time, a special welcome to you. To our returning listeners, attendees, welcome back. On this program, we lean into cutting-edge innovation and thinking, and we're always excited about endeavors that push the envelope of what's needed and what's possible. So let me now introduce our guests, and you can refer to longer bios for each on the WIHI program page on IHI.org. First, it's my pleasure to welcome the head of the Joint Commission to WIHI. That's Dr. Mark Chasson, who oversees the activities of this nation's predominant standard-setting and accrediting body in healthcare. He is also president of the Joint Commission Center for Transforming Healthcare, which was founded in 2009. Welcome, Dr. Chasson. Thanks, Madge. Glad, I'm very glad to be here. Terrific. Are you in Chicago today? Yes. All right. Just wanted to, uh, people are often uh, not necessarily at, at, at home base, so I wanted to just check. Well, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. And here in the studio with me is IHI's president and CEO, Maureen Bisignano. That's always a treat for me. Maureen is a pr- prominent authority on improving healthcare systems, as many of you know, and she advises healthcare leaders and organizations all around the world, which is why I'm thrilled she's in Cambridge today. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you, Madge, and welcome, Mark. All right, great. So we're going to get started, and I want to thank uh, again uh, the WIHI audience for tuning in and for your interest. We had about uh, 1,500 of you enroll in the program, and typically we get about half of you that actually get on the live show because uh, things change, but we hope if you like what you hear and you think it's useful that you'll tell people that they can find, you and they can find a downloaded um, downloadable version of the program by tomorrow morning. So So sometimes we start off with a pop quiz just to make sure that everyone's uh, digested their lunch and is still awake. Um, And we're going to – the way in which you say yes is you just raise your hand. So, John, is the chat still open so people can do that? I'll make sure my man on WebEx is with us here. So here's the question, and the way you say yes is you just raise your hand. So I want to know how many of you joining us today are familiar with the concept of high reliability if you are, raise your hand. Let's see. All right. Where are we here? Are we seeing it? Oh, I have a hand, but I'm not seeing hands. Oh, where are they here? Lots. Yeah. Lots here. Okay. Oh, all right. Here we go. Here they come. Couldn't see the number there. All right. 
Well, there's somehow over 500 of you, almost 600 of you right now. How many? I'm to keep going. If you're familiar with the concept, 85, 86. All right, it's coming. Coming, coming, coming. Keep going, keep going, keep going. This is good. A lot of people are typing in hand. Thank you. <laughs> that helps. All right. Well, that's good. I really, really appreciate. Now, uh, go ahead. You can keep responding. And now I want to know, even as you keep saying affirmatively, how many of you, you're familiar now, so you've got some uh, working knowledge to help you get started today. How many of you are in organizations where you would say your organization is actively working on high reliability? Um, So, whoops, there goes, uh, let's see, are we going up or down? All right, we'll see. Mark, can you see the numbers as well? I'm seeing the... uh, Yeah, the ones that are going up. We sort of see this little display thing going on up here. It's uh, right next to attendees. All right, so about 130 and change of you say that you are actively engaged. All right, so that's a good... uh, I don't know, fit one-fifth, one-sixth of people there. So that gives a tremendous room for opportunity here. And I think by the end of the program, thank you all for participating in that pop quiz. We're going to close the chat now until uh, the um, half-hour mark, and then we'll open things up again. But this gives you some idea of, for all of you of kind of where are we in this space of high reliability and now, and Mark Chasson's going to help us out and fill some things in for us. So I want to also mention that Mark Chasson and Jared Loeb wrote an article for Health Affairs last April, and it's available for free for the next 48 hours on IHI.org. Thanks to Health Affairs for that. And I chatted that in to the chat. I'll have John put that link in there again. Um, And you can also find a pathway to that article and a number of resources on high reliability on the homepage of the Joint Commission's website. So we'll repeat that again. So we're discussing high reliability in hospital care today or in health care that's, um, you know, also got some risks to it that happens outside the hospital because there is growing concern among many that the pace of change with implementing safe practices, the depth of change, the sustainability of change, despite all the hard work, remain insufficient, and we're not where we want to be thinking especially about the U.S. healthcare system, but I'm sure there are some things here that apply elsewhere. So my first question, I'm going to start with Maureen. Is this a fair characterization of um, things right now? And if so, are we definitely in need or are we in need of some new approaches, some game-changing ideas? Maureen. I think that this is where Mark and I agree completely, one of many areas that um, we need a new and a continued, even stronger approach to thinking about reliability in hospitals. Let let me explain why I feel so strongly about this. Um, If you take a look at this slide, um, this is a slide that Jeff Selberg, the chief operating officer at IHI, has built to kind of describe, I think, where we're at. In the past uh, 15 or 20 years, uh, as Mark says in his article, a lot of hospitals, most all, have focused on some aspects of reliability. We focused in on ventilator pneumonia or how can we um, eliminate central line infections. And I think we've made progress. Clearly, I sit on the Commonwealth Fund's board, and we're just releasing a new scorecard this week, which in a lot of ways shows that the most progress we've made are in these areas of safety. So that we have to celebrate. But I show this slide to say 
that it's a time when I think we really need to double down and focus even more strongly on becoming high reliability organizations. Let me explain. If you look at this this graph, it, what it does is it shows that many hospitals in the United States are in the midst of a transformation. In the first, in the left-hand side, we're looking at a clinical model of episodic care, where a hospital takes care of patients who come in. The business model is primarily fee-for-service, and the infrastructure is pretty segmented. So it's the kind of traditional hospital care that we've always had. We, we're, as I said, still having challenges in getting to high reliability in that current structure. But what you also see simultaneously is that organizations are moving from that first curve to the second curve, which is thinking about bundled payments and thinking about capitation, thinking about um, ACOs and all the new ways that they're thinking about structuring. And what I'm hearing a lot is that the attention of senior leader teams has shifted from the agenda of safety to the agenda of infrastructure changes to respond to the new models. And my worry is when we take our leadership eyes off of that safety goal, we could see slippages in safety even from the gains that we've made. So I see many executives telling me as I travel through the United States and abroad that they feel like they've got one foot on the dock and one foot in a boat, and they're trying to manage the current business model even as they're moving to a different one. It's a time for me of potential risk and a time for me to say, let's go back to focusing on high reliability because we need to serve those patients today. Okay. Thank you very much, Maureen. And Maureen's slide, for those of you who are just joining by phone, says, where are you in the model life cycle? And if you email us at info at IHI We'll be sure to share all the slides with you today. Uh, so uh, we will have some visuals, as we always do, and we'll be sure we can get those to you. So uh, let me do this, Mark. Let's, uh, again, start off with just kind of a quick comment, and then I'm going to uh, ask you a question that will get more into uh, all the thinking you've been doing. But did I characterize the problem correctly um, in terms of we've got it, we, that we do have a problem, and Maureen is expressing some concerns as well, uh, particularly at a time of change and transformation. And do we need something game-changing, do you think? Well, I I think you've characterized uh, the problem uh, quite well. Um, You know, I've been involved in uh, quality measurement and improvement for, well, uh, more than 30 years now uh, from the standpoint of uh, practicing medicine. I practiced emergency medicine for 12 years, research um, I was uh, head of the hospital quality program for a number of years and a, a state health commissioner before that. Um, and there's never been a time when more effort, energy, and resources have been devoted to improving quality and safety than in the last 10 years or so since those IOM reports. And yet today, as you said, despite all that effort, we still see routine safety processes like hand hygiene, like communicating across transitions of care, medication administration, routine safety processes failing routinely um, at very high rates, not just at rates of 5 or 10%, but at 30, 40, 50% uh, rates of failure. And we see a steady stream of um, totally preventable adverse events, uh, like wrong site surgery, uh, that the public uh, finds absolutely inexplicable, and they're continuing. 
And that's despite this huge effort that we've placed on um, improving quality and safety. So, uh, and in fact, you mentioned um, the, some global implications. Uh, uh, Joint Commission International Accreditation Program now is uh, up around 500 organizations accredited in uh, 50 countries. And I can uh, tell you, and I, th- I think Maureen would agree, that these problems are really global problems. There is no healthcare system anywhere in the world, no matter how it's organized, financed, or how the delivery system functions, that has solved uh, all of these quality and safety problems. So I think that um, state of affairs really suggests that we need to think about how we do improvement um, in new ways and to look at uh, the way other uh, industries that have achieved uh, high levels of safety um, have done that and see what we can learn from them. Thanks so much. Uh, that's Dr. Mark Chasson that you're listening to from the Joint Commission, and before him, Maureen Bisignano from IHI. All right, so let's dig in then, uh, Mark. Uh, the concept of high reliability. Um, Maureen referred to actually kind of going back to thinking about high reliability. So clearly it's been around. It's been around in other industries, and it's been uh, focused on in healthcare. So what's new in this space that has you so focused on um, high reliability? Uh, and why don't you take just a couple of, you know, three to four or five minutes uh, explaining kind of what what you're trying to frame right now. Sure, uh, I'll be happy to. I, I think uh, you're right that this uh, idea has been around for a while, uh, and it really comes from the study, uh, the academic study, of organizations that have succeeded in achieving very, very high levels of safety, despite uh, having to deal with very serious risk. Um, you know, and the best example, the most commonly cited example, uh, is commercial air travel. Um, In four out of the last five years, there have been no deaths in U.S. commercial air travel. Uh, Over that five-year period, with the exception of one crash outside Buffalo three years ago, uh, that's been the case. So the the total safety record uh, measured in this metric is about 50 deaths in about 50 million flights. Uh, So this literature has looked at what makes organizations like commercial air travel, nuclear power, uh, the, the the Japanese recent Japanese is uh, accident is a, a, a very outlying exception to the safety track record of nuclear power, uh, but other organizations as well. Um, the uh, operation of uh, aircraft carrier flight decks, wildland firefighting crews. So these organizations have been uh, studied academically going back for ten fifteen. Uh, years and actually roots even further back. And the literature has sort of characterized what these organizations have in common with each other uh, in an attempt to define what high reliability, which means consistent high levels of safety over long periods of time, uh, how is that produced in human endeavor that deals with very serious risk? And there's a, a lot of, uh, of academics. Anybody that uh, is really interested should uh, start with uh, Carl Weick and Kathy Sutcliffe's book, Managing the Unexpected. Um, and what they describe is, an, or, is a, um, an atmosphere in these organizations uh, that they um, characterize as uh, representing something they called collective mindfulness. What that really means is everybody in these organizations is looking at every process that they touch 
every day and trying to understand how it might fail differently than it, than it has in the past. And with everyone cooperating in that effort, what that allows these organizations to do is to find safety and quality problems in any and every process when they're really small, before they pose any risk and certainly before they uh, have harmed anyone. And they're much easier to fix at that point and prevent the growth of the problem, the mushrooming, until it blows up and hurts people. In healthcare, we're very often, most often, in the situation of having to investigate an episode of patient harm where a patient was harmed, retrospectively trying to figure out what happened, and then putting plans in place uh, to try to make sure it doesn't happen again. So if you broadly look over this literature, and I'm not going to get into great detail unless uh, our audience is uh, interested in that, uh, I think it's fair to characterize, as we did in this article, uh, three components of what makes these organizations highly reliable or consistently excellent. One is a leadership commitment to zero major quality failures. And that means all components of leadership. And I'll go back and, and tease these out in a little bit more detail in a second. The second um, component is a completely and fully embedded culture of safety. And the third is very, very highly effective tools to perfect the processes that they use in order to get their business done. So highly effective process improvement tools to create nearly perfect processes, a culture that wraps around those improved processes that finds the small things that are likely to go wrong or that are uh, happening every day that get in the way of their smooth functioning, fixing them rapidly before they do harm, all in the context of a leadership commitment to producing zero major quality failures. And the uh, conclusion from this um, literature, really, is that that's what characterizes how these organizations function once they get to this level of high reliability. But we know from looking at, at healthcare uh, literally all around the world that no healthcare organization has achieved that level of consistent and sustained exemplary safety. And indeed, when, uh, again, you look inside this literature, what you find is there's really no guidance on how you get from low reliability, where healthcare by and large is now, to high reliability. So what we've been doing uh, at the Joint Commission for the last few years, working with uh, experts in high reliability from industries uh, all around the world, um, in, uh, with our uh, hospital and health system customers, with uh, a board-level working group, is to try to put a stake in the ground and to say, well, what does it really look like? What could healthcare, what pathway could healthcare travel to get from low to high reliability? And in this uh, health fairs article that you reference, we sort of, uh, Jared Loeb and I, uh, my colleague here at the Joint Commission, uh, sort of laid out uh, a framework for thinking about how healthcare could get to high reliability in the, in the frame of those three imperatives, leadership commitment, safety culture, and full adoption of effective process improvement tools. 
Okay. So let me just take uh, another minute or two and, and go through each of those. Okay. Um, you know what? I'm going to ask you to hold one second. I, oh, I, I, okay. I, no, this sure. is great. You, you've laid out a lot. And I think what I'll do is hold that thought. Let's, we, will, we can walk through this. And um, I want to ask um, kind of Maureen just for a moment here um, about some of your just, – just what you've heard so far in terms of uh, getting from low to high – for example, does this kind of a, a, a sort of a progression make a lot of sense to you? It makes a lot of sense to me, and it's what I see daily when I'm visiting hospitals. I'll just give you a quick example to follow up on Mark's example from the airline industry uh, about the leadership piece, and then we'll turn it back, Mark, for you to go through the details. But I recently spent uh, half a day with Captain Sullenberger, who landed the U.S. Air flight on the Hudson River, and I was asking him um, in some pretty detailed form what happened. And and as he was describing his response, and I actually was listening to the conversation that he had with the control tower and listening to what he was saying to his um, co-pilot, uh, I was struck by some differences, as Mark said, between the approach that we normally take in healthcare and what I was hearing and what Captain Sullenberger was describing to me. And I was asking him, why did he do what he did? And he went through this very um, uh, very well thought out approach to what happened when the birds flew into the engine and the engines died. And it, it was very interesting because um, he described taking four actions. Um, the first, very first words that he said when you listen to the recording is he said, my aircraft, and the co-pilot said, your aircraft. In other words, he took control and the co-pilot ceded control. And when I asked him why he did that, he said there were four reasons. One is I was in the pilot seat and I was going to land on the Hudson River and it was on the left side of the plane and I had better visual access to that. The second thing he said was I thought to uh, myself, it's been 11 months since I was in the simulation lab. The, my co-pilot had been in the simulation lab just a few weeks ago, so I knew he could thumb through the manual and find the page where bird, birds fly into an engine and your engine dies faster than I could because he had been there so so much more recently. Of course, there was no page for that because that had never happened before. Um, the third was that um, Captain Sullenberg had logged more hours in the in the plane and the fourth was that uh, the co-pilot had never flown this particular plane before. And I asked him, how did you know that? Because when you walk into the average operating room and you're confronting some of the issues that Mark described, like wrong site surgery or inadequate anesthesia, what I find is that many people don't know the qualifications or the skills of every member of the team around the table. And so I asked him more about that. And one more example, and I'll turn it back to you, Mark, is that he was describing that in in his lifetime, when he was flying planes, so not that long ago, he said that every co-pilot would carry onto the plane a little suitcase, a little black suitcase, filled with, in the name of the suitcase was the pilot's preference list. And in it was all of the specific things that this individual pilot who was flying, flying the plane that day, it was their idiosyncratic ways that they liked they liked to take off faster or they liked to fly with less fuel or they liked to land in a different way and the co-pilot's job was to accommodate the 
specific preferences of the pilot. Mm. In his lifetime, that all went away. And what they did was they standardized all procedures so that when birds flew into an engine, their energy could be focused on the defect, not on the standard work. Mm -hmm. And I asked, how did that happen? And he said it was was basically the co-pilots who rose up and said, we know we're not providing the safest care if we're tending to the pilot and not the plane and the flying. Mm. Secondly, the airline executives came together with the union and they said – It's our job to standardize, to create highly reliable flying such that when something goes wrong, all attention can be paid there. Mm, Very, very interesting. Thank you, Maureen. That's that's a great kind of illustration. It makes it very, very uh, vivid. So we'll go back to your slide now, Mark, and uh, just walk us through. Go ahead quickly, uh, the the kind of stages he – John will bring back that uh, slide that has to do with uh, moving from – It's a kind of self-assessment. Of that. Yep, yeah, we. this uh, this slide is uh, from the, the back of that health affairs article. It sort of lays out a first version of how we think about uh, the three different components of, uh, of high reliability, leadership, safety, culture, and uh, robust process improvement. Uh, if you put up the next one, what we've uh, done, the high reliability self-assessment, we've broken this down even uh, more into 14 different components of high reliability. So for leadership, uh, there is uh, what the board of the organization needs to be committed to, the role of management and the CEO, uh, the role of physicians. Um, And in safety culture, there are discrete uh, accomplishments that organizations uh, need to address. So for example, um, and I'm not going to go into great detail here, but for example, we've heard uh, and and struggled with uh, the idea that um, a safe culture in healthcare uh, needs to be blame-free. Well, um, there's no high-reliability organization uh, in the world that is completely blame-free. What the safety culture in high-reliability organizations achieves is a balance between uh, understanding how to find the blameless acts for learning, the simple mistakes that people make every day because we're human, identify those and use those for learning. Why did that mistake happen? What is the unsafe condition that is revealed when you look behind that? But also to recognize that accountability for adherence to safe practices is another component of safety culture. And that's uh, the balance that we often have difficulty establishing in healthcare organizations. And then the third component is this much more sophisticated approach to solving problems. Um, And I I will spend a little more time talking about that uh, later, but that's a very big part of the new approach to high reliability that I think we need to establish in healthcare uh, because our old approach has just not produced the results that we need. Thanks so much. Um, Go ahead. So let's – excuse me? Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. A few hand signals. By the way, thanks so much, Mark. That's very, very helpful. And I just want to be mindful of the fact that we we put up this link from Health Affairs. And for some reason, it's uh, people are not being able to get through to it. us. It, it should be available. So we'll, we'll work on it as we're all talking here. All right. So let's, before we go to questions, I want to get in a few uh, things here. Um, one, uh, just because uh, we're, we're um, I, I want to make sure people can get in their questions and comments, and that'll help us kind of also return.
return to some of this content, uh, Mark and Maureen. I know that uh, Mark has some thoughts about hand hygiene as a very, very uh, good example of an area that uh, requires some a different approach, and it suggests some things about best practices, and that maybe a notion that we might overuse from some time for um, for some things. And um, so, why don't I do this, Maureen? You want me to ask Mark to sort of give that example, and then Maureen will follow on that. So let's let's uh, sort of use that. I know that's something that you've done some research at the center on. Uh, so take a couple of minutes and to explain that, Mark, and then Maureen will tee off of that. Sure. So uh, we uh, created here at the Joint Commission uh, a new part of our organization called the Center for Transforming Healthcare uh, that has as its role uh, working with organizations that have mastered these tools. Uh, when What we're calling uh, robust process improvement really is not mysterious. It's lean, Six Sigma, uh, and formal approaches to change management. Uh, we at the Joint Commission have been uh, adopting these tools now for uh, for over four years and have, have gotten quite uh, good at using them. With the center pro- hospitals, we tackle some of the most resistant quality and safety problems, uh, some of the ones that I mentioned earlier on, using this new set of uh, problem-solving approaches. And what we found um, is that this new approach really is much more effective in getting to understand why we still have these problems and then solving them, primarily because of its approach of uh, carefully measuring the magnitude of a problem, for example, hand hygiene, and then looking very thoroughly at why in every organization the problem of hand hygiene occurs. So uh, in this uh, slide, I think that's up now, uh, this shows you uh, each row in this slide is one of 10 major causes of hand hygiene failure that this center project found, and this is directly from the center's website, uh, which you can get to um, very easily. Uh, And each letter in the column is one of the hospitals that participated in this project. An X in the box means that that cause of failure of hand hygiene was proven statistically using these tools to explain a significant amount of the reasons why hand hygiene failed. And so the first thing that we found, and these are are 10 of about 20 different causes, the first thing we found is there are lots of causes of these complex problems like handoff communication, hand hygiene, wrong site surgery, and each cause requires a very different intervention to really get rid of. So if you don't have your hand gel dispensers in the right place, that's one cause, but you can have lots of hand gel dispensers uh, in the right places, and if you don't have enough of a safety culture where everyone is looking for folks who are distracted, who are going past the, the hand gel dispenser without using it, and calling them on it and stopping that from happening, then it really doesn't matter how many hand gel dispensers you have, and, uh, and so on. So each of these causes requires a different intervention, and the punchline here is that the causes that matter to each organization, the three or four or five that are critical to explaining the vast majority of the failures, differ from one place to another. So if you look at the red circles on, uh, in column A here, those are the causes that hospital A does not have to address because it doesn't have them. And if you went through a laundry list of all the possible ways to improve hand hygiene, um, and it was 
a list of these ten, um, and everybody did them, regardless of what causes were important, you would waste an awful lot of effort. Uh, but if you only did the causes that Hospital A had and flip over to look at that last column in Hospital H, Hospital H has practically none of the same causes. So this new approach needs to recognize uh, recognize this set of findings and arrive at a way for best practices to be customized to the causes of the problem where you're trying to solve it. Um, and that's what the center's uh, solutions do, and that's uh, how we have, uh, all of the center's projects have, have turned up uh, the same findings, and you can see those for handoff communication, wrong site surgery on the center's website. And now we're creating tools that allow all of our um, the organizations we work with use this knowledge to develop their own customized set of interventions selected from ones that the center hospitals have proven, but targeted to their causes. Very, very interesting. Thank you so much. Um, that's uh, Dr. Mark Chasson from the Joint Commission. All right, Maureen, before we go to chat, let's go through a couple of, of your thoughts. So first, your reaction to this notion, here we are over many years of improvement. You've been uh, at the center and uh, at the helm of a lot of this talking about best practices and uh, reliability in many ways, uh, depending on it. Now we're trying to get a, a kind of more nuanced look about the degree to which maybe things need to become more customized and better understood in your own particular organization. Does that make a lot of sense to you? It makes a lot of sense. I think Mark is absolutely right that in many cases we've approached safety by trying to respond to every single little defect and by adding on more and more complexity. So we create a very complex package and then try and introduce that everywhere. And certainly I think what happens then is we're actually introducing more variation than we're decreasing. So I completely agree with leaders needing to get in and do what Mark describes, which is to do a deep dive into their own circumstances and then to customize the uh, solution to get to standardized care. And I think that, you know, in a sense, I think that it's the next step that we need to take. It's a sophisticated leadership able to uh, round and and work with middle-level managers to to figure out what are the unique circumstances here, defining a, a change package that's modifiable but then implementable on the specific unit, transparent tracking of results so that people can see where progress is being made and where it isn't, and then the cultural changes that we need. In healthcare, um, in my early career and in most all of the people on the phone, I think you can you can relate to the fact that we learned to be heroes by solving individual problems. We'd see a problem like a hand a gel dispenser that was empty or walking into a room with your hands full, two of the causes that Mark described. And what we would do is we would work around that particular issue, never calling it out and never standardizing it to prevent it the next time. So individual heroics trumped process change. And I think what we're being challenged to do here now in high reliability thinking is to actually take a step back, look at the specific circumstances here, customize 
uh, standardized so that when a specific issue arises, we can manage that. Okay, very, very good. Do you want to say just a couple of thoughts? Um, I, I'm, I, be patient, everybody. We'll get there. We're going to get to your questions and comments. Maureen, do you want to make just a couple of thoughts, sorry, comments about patients and patient engagement uh, maybe before we open things up? Because I think that's a very important thing to get on the table. Um, well, it is my passion that the voice of the customer drive um, patient engagement. Um, two quick examples. One is I was um, with a patient in California. Uh, he even may be on the phone right now. He's got kind of our faculty lead for patients, um, for some patient teaching now. But Gilbert describes um, circumstances in his hospitalizations and in his care where every individual encounter was appropriate and reliable, but when you looked across his journey, you saw him falling into crevices between reliable processes. So high reliability is only good when we can put the high reliability label on an entire journey of care. In other words, a patient might get excellent care um, in an ICU bed or in an emergency department, but if they get then discharged to a primary care provider without a reliable handoff, they've fallen into a hole. So it's reliability across a journey, and the only way we can see that journey is by sitting down and talking to patients. Um, This week I also interviewed a patient in Vancouver, Canada, a family member, who was describing how her husband died of a medical error, and she described how every encounter with the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the GI person, the hematology fellow, every individual interaction was highly reliable, but none of them spoke to each other, and her husband died of an error that happened between the, the reliable processes. So I want to put out there the notion yeah. that reliability is really a journey through the patient's eyes and across the continuum. Okay. Well, I think these uh, the thinking from you, Maureen, and you, uh, Mark Chasson, Dr. Mark Chasson, they combine very well and make a lot of sense. I hope they do to all of you who um, are listening and are logged in here. All right, uh, John, we're going to go over to chat, and um, we'll uh, work to continue to resolve any dropped audio or audio interference that anyone's having, and uh, we'll now get to the substance. We'd love to your, your We'd love to hear your questions and comments, and so now's your opportunity, and some people are right at the ready. Um, Let's see, accreditation, oh boy. I have a, okay, so we're getting into accreditation issues, which I confess, it's fine to stick it in there in chat. Um, So I don't know that we're going to work on that so much right now, because we're trying to talk about high reliability, and so anything that you have uh, to offer to that discussion would probably be the most helpful for the broader audience right now. Uh, Let me ask uh, both of you, as people are kind of gearing up to chat in some more things, uh, Mark, what do you think is the biggest barrier to embracing high reliability as you go around talking about this? What do hospitals say are the barriers, and do you uh, share their perceptions <laughs> well you know I, I hear uh, uh, barriers all the time um, and I think uh, they're in each of the three uh, areas that we talked about as uh, as needing change um, some uh, hospital leaders would say uh, well you know getting to zero it's just too unrealistic there's no point in actually setting that as a goal because it's um, it, it'll just never happen it's impossible 
Um, and yet we have examples, uh, as Maureen uh, talked about earlier, of central line infections in ICUs actually getting to zero and staying there. Um, and the, the point there is that if you don't set the goal at zero, your pathway uh, and next steps are very different than uh, if you're just interested in very small incremental improvements. Um, for uh, In the safety culture area, which I think is probably the place where uh, most organizations are, uh, are having the most trouble, um, the uh, long-standing relationships between professional groups, nurses and physicians, pharmacists and nurses, uh, often get in the way of establishing uh, the kind of uh, flat playing field that cockpits and airlines have succeeded in doing where everybody is expected to contribute to uh, the safety agenda. Um, and we don't have any um, foolproof and well-worked-out um, blueprints for how you get to a fully embedded safety culture. Uh, there are some good uh, examples and good models, uh, but uh, we haven't seen uh, the perfect um, toolkit emerge yet. Um, and then on the process improvement uh, side, uh, there's a lot of resistance because these tools are, are new, Lean, Six Sigma, change management. Um, they are different from what's gone on before. Um, and they're often viewed as too costly, it takes too long, uh, I don't have the budget for it, I don't have the time. Um, and yet the same tools, when applied to business processes, can markedly improve throughput, improve uh, financial processes uh, at the same time as you're improving quality and safety. So um, mm -hmm. there's lots of change is always difficult. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Good questions. Maureen, thoughts? Um, I wanted to respond to Sandy's um, comment on the chat, which is how would more appropriate treatment benefit safety? I think that's a fantastic question yeah, and a good one. really, really one we need to focus on. Um, my kind of um, creative thinking right now is to move from, as Susan Edgman-Levitin would say, a, um, a kind of a, a medical treatment process that says, what's the matter? to one that says, what matters to you? And I think we're, we really need to make this shift from what's the matter, that is, I'll just automatically go through the motions of treatment, um, to really what matters. And, and that really is the question, I think, for the high reliability organization, is delivering perfect care safely for what matters to you. So I think that's a profound question. And I'll make one comment on Joanna's uh, question there on leadership. And let me give you a quick example. I thought you might <laughs> take that one. <laughs> um, you know, one of uh, my colleagues, uh, John O'Brien, is the chief executive of a, an academic medical center. And the way that he demonstrates his leadership, I think, is pretty, uh, pretty wonderful. Once a month, John has breakfast at his hospital, and he invites any employees of the hospital who've been patients or their family members have been patients that month. And John sits with all the staff and, and has breakfast with them. And during the course of the breakfast, he asks this question. He says, when you were a patient or your family member was, what rules did you break in order to make your care great? What he's doing there is he's surfacing all of the 
low reliability processes that required a knowledgeable staff person to jump in and do something differently. And that list of what rules did you break to make care great becomes his agenda to move toward high reliability. So thank you, Maureen. And Maureen is responding to a question for anyone who's on the phone where somebody actually was asking uh, about leadership and also sort of how somebody who isn't in a leadership position gets leadership uh, kind of thinking in these ways. Mark, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I think, in other words, there are people on this program today who would like their leaders to uh, be sort of taking heed from what we're discussing today and what might be some effective ways uh, to get their attention with this. I, I think that's an absolutely great question, and I think um, the answer, first of all, is for uh, individuals who uh, want to raise this uh, further up the leadership of their organizations um, to understand what how safe the culture is within their organizations. Sometimes uh, in unsafe cultures, um, in punitive cultures, uh, the messenger about, gee, there's a better way to do things, um, is not received very well. Uh, and in that kind of circumstance, I think the, uh, the first thing to look for is a champion. Uh, a champion who's well-respected, who understands that there are, uh, there, we have a lot of room for improvement, and uh, to feed that individual some of these new ways of thinking about how to get from lower to higher levels of performance um, and start with uh, a well-respected champion uh, raising these issues and starting a discussion about are we really happy getting better at a rate of 1% or 2% a year or should we really be looking for ways to make major improvements across many different parts of our quality and safety agenda at the same time. Interesting. Lots of very interesting thoughts and thinking aloud going on here, which is why we love chat, and we love it when you also respond to one another. Some people are wondering about bringing the concept of reliability into patient behavior and expectations of patients in terms of uh, kind of their own uh, part of, of the system here. Uh, here's a question maybe, Mark, I'll ask you very quickly. Uh, Susan is asking, industries, uh, some say that healthcare is just more complex uh, than any other industry, uh, despite all the uh, ways in which we describe the comparisons uh, on airlines, in particular nuclear. Um, do you buy that? Healthcare is very complex. Uh, it is certainly no more complex than uh, the other industries that we've talked about that have gotten to be uh, very, very safe. Uh, there are differences uh, in healthcare, um, and so it's it's hard to transfer uh, without translating some of the specific practices that uh, nuclear power or electric energy or finance have learned. Uh, but that does not mean that these principles and the approaches are not directly applicable. And I think we're seeing more and more evidence that in fact they are. Um, the other industries have been at it longer. And some of them have um, more opportunity to use automation to solve the problem. So, you know, uh, when was the last time your bank made a mistake on an ATM transaction? Uh, they perfected the process, and then they took people almost completely out of it. Uh, we can't do that in healthcare. So uh, it doesn't mean that we can't learn from the way uh, other complex industries have solved their process problems. Um, it does mean we need to adapt their, the approaches to the uh, idiosyncrasies and the unique characteristics of healthcare, 
But these processes and uh, uh, the safety culture aspects of high reliability uh, certainly work in healthcare. Maureen, quite thank you, Mark. Uh, Maureen, question for you: uh, a role for the board in high reliability? Uh, that's a great question, and clearly, I think the board has a, a huge role in driving high reliability. Um, when I sit with boards, and I'm sure, Mark, you've had the same experience, uh, some boards are open and questioning, and when they hear about a defect or a bad experience of care, they're interested in figuring out what kind of processes, equipment, technological changes, training could we use to move toward high reliability. And other boards uh, really uh, are still in a very much of a blaming place. And so uh, I think the tenor of the board's response to learning about some of these um, failures in in process does drive the culture. Uh, perhaps they don't even realize what that's ha- what's doing there. But I also want to pick up on David Dalton's great comment about consequences, and I think it yeah. links to right. the board and leadership. And um, David, I want to hear more about this, but I, I completely agree with you that. Um, when something goes wrong, um, the, you put a system of consequences for the staff, and and I, I, I want to hear more about that. But I think the the idea that I've got about this is that that sitting with the whole team and and helping them to see how one thing led to another or one thing failed to lead to another, and and really helping them to see the consequences of what happened is in itself part of the system of consequences. Many times they take a shortcut and they never see the downstream failure. But that knowledge is really powerful. And then I agree with you that there certainly will be some circumstances when a staff member knows better, has the resources, and willfully disregards a safety process. That's got to be dealt with in a way. Uh, I think more frequently what we'll see is the system of consequences will be about knowledge, training, and really a system of leadership learning about adequate resources and supplies. Mark, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, let me uh, comment on a, on, on, on a related but slightly different um, aspect of the question, and, and that relates to what I said before about the balance in a true safety culture um, between the trust among caregivers that leads to the identification of unsafe conditions because nobody's afraid of uh, pointing them out. There's no retribution for uh, the small mistakes that everybody makes, uh, usually because unsafe conditions have created an environment in which mistakes are more likely. Uh, and that's, that's the blame-free part. Um, but the accountability part is just as important. So, for example, in a number of uh, the hospitals that have gotten way down the road with uh, the center's hand hygiene solutions. Um, it's one thing to have gone through all the causes and make it easier to do the right thing and uh, all the rest of the uh, of the fixes. But when individuals um, repeatedly violate the safe practice of washing in and washing out, uh, the consequences in terms of disciplinary action have to be clear and they have to be transparent and they have to be applied equitably across all caregiver groups. So in uh, a number of places, uh, there are now uh, specific consequences with respect to physicians, the usual constituency that's raised in this context, uh, that eventually can threaten their uh, privileges in uh, in providing care in hospitals if they are repeat violators of, of these safe practices. 
so the the balance between trust and accountability is is really uh, is really critical. And let me also address the question about patient behavior mm-hmm. uh, because I think there there is a, a very similar um, kind of process that. Uh, at least we've seen in a couple of uh, applications here, and that is um, it, it, patient um, adherence to uh, treatment plans is often cited as uh, uncontrollable. You know, patients are just not going to do what their uh, what their doctors tell them to do or what we want them to do very often, and it's not uh, we we can't control that. Well, um, in my experience, if you ask the same questions and seek the causes of non-adherence, what you often find are very similar patterns where there are very specific barriers to non-adherence that differ from one place to another. There may be knowledge deficits. Um, there may be uh, a lack of understanding, for example, in patient with heart failure that I have to weigh myself every day because it's the salt in my diet that's leading to fluid buildup, but those connections may be opaque to patients. So asking the same questions and using the same problem-solving methods can get you to critical causes of non-adherence that are not related to lack of will or lack of interest or lack of attention, uh, but are remediable if, uh, if you understand what they are. Very, very interesting. Um, in your grid uh, about sort of the, the kind of journey to becoming highly reliability, you made some references in there, or there are some uh, categories in there that talk about both incentives for leaders and rewards for leaders. Uh, that's a question that's uh, in this chat scroll uh, a little higher up here, but I want to go back to it. Can you speak to that? Uh, Somebody is asking, what do you mean? Let's, let's talk about uh, rewards, for example. What, are, what, what do you mean by that? Well, so for example, if we um, expect, um, and I'll, I'll deal with perhaps the less obvious uh, and, and then get to the more obvious. If we expect um, the spread of learning about how to do change management, how to do these very effective, uh, pro- use these very effective process improvement tools, if we want those to be spread throughout our organization, then we can't just say, well, it's a group of experts over here in the quality department that have these tools. Uh, we need to, in fact, incentivize the staff by making this part of staff development, promotion, uh, advancement. Uh, as part of, the, of changing the culture, everyone should be learning and using these tools as appropriate for, uh, for their jobs. If we uh, expect the safety culture of our organization to improve, uh, then the incentive structures that we have uh, in the organization for managers, directors, uh, and executives should reflect the importance of achieving safety culture. All these things can be measured. Uh, we actually do that at the Joint Commission. We're adopting a safety culture. We measure how well we're doing. We report that to our board. We measure how well we're uh, succeeding in spreading process improvement tools. Um, and report that to our board so the board is engaged. I totally agree with uh, Maureen. That is uh, an essential component of the leadership commitment. Um, if they're disengaged, then uh, a big part of the, uh, of the machine, if you will, to produce improvement uh, isn't there. So uh, all the way up to incentive compensation for achieving um, quality goals. So there are all kinds of ways that uh, positive incentives can be used uh, to drive toward high reliability. 
Thank you very much. I want to, um, as we sort of come to the end, I think I want to uh, add, uh, sort of end on or wrap it up uh, on, on an optimistic note. I'd like Maureen to say a little something about students. Uh, there was a question and a comment in here about tools that can help uh, emerging health professionals. Um, and I know Maureen wanted to kind of make a connection to IHI's open school in that respect, but uh, sort of teaching this next generation uh, about reliability. Well, so many of the um, the chats relate to the fact that we work around every single day uh, all the different little issues that we come up across in healthcare. And I think we're training students to do the same. I think in many cases when I talk to students, they get accolades, they get affirmed when they manage every little problem independently and they never learn the methods of seeing the system and of high reliability and safety. So I just would encourage folks on the phone to send students, nursing students, medical students, uh, healthcare administration programs, pharmacy students to the IHI Open School. And um, the open school has three different functions. One is to um, to take a look at courses, and we've got many courses that have to do with safety, reliability, and then quality improvement once you see a defect. Um, and then we've also got chapters and um, different ways that the students get together in the world and um, come to, to come together physically, although all they're taking courses virtually, come together physically in these chapters worldwide to uh, join together and work in local hospitals to help with improvement projects. I think what we're trying to do in the open school is what Mark's trying to do in the center, and that is change the culture so that people don't just get into the the um, rut and the routine of solving every problem individually, but that they work together around the world and see themselves as a part of a system that surfaces problems capably uh, solves those improve, through improvement and high reliability methods and makes care better for patients in the future. Okay. Thank you so much, Maureen Bizignano, IHI's President and CEO. And a big uh, thank you to you, Dr. Mark Chasson, from the Joint Commission. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program today. I hope we can have you back. I know we tried to walk through a fairly complex <laughs> set of issues today having to do with high reliability, and we do appreciate your hanging in there there with us. We'll get the link to the Health Affairs article straightened out from uh, the one that was provided uh, by the journal. Uh, you can also find the article on the Joint Commission's homepage. And uh, John's uh, got a slide up here just to remind me, remind me to remind you that when you log off, if you've tuned in via WebEx today and you log off, we really do help and uh, hope in addition to getting the slides that you'll fill out a brief survey. Uh, this helps us continually improve the program and become more reliable. And we're going to do a drawing, and you could uh, win an Amazon gift card. So we hope you'll do that. We're going to continue also. We'll, we sort of jump to our Facebook page at the end of the program, and by tomorrow morning uh, on IHI.org. And if you check Facebook as well, IHI's Facebook page will have audio of today's program and all the related resources. So, Dr. Mark Chasson, thank you very much for your time today. 
It was a pleasure. A wonderful, and we'll uh, we'll keep the conversation going. Um, on March twenty second, I've got a speaking of uh, how, how we're going to get there. What can you learn in ninety days? And we're going to walk you through IHI's R and D process with Lindsay Martin, Andrea Capsinel, and uh, Dr. Patel, um, who has some interesting uh, work to show and share with you based on an innovation college she just took part in. And you can find that information on the IHI.org website right now. Now, any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org, and you can ask for any of the slides that you forget to uh, select when you log off the program. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and our Northeastern Co-op, Rachel Yates. Big thank you to you, Maureen, for your time today. Thank you, Magic in, in your busy schedule. And we have some nice music uh, original arrangements that open and close the program, so listen in to those. We hope you'll tune in again, and you'll tell everyone about the show, and you can uh, get it on iTunes as well as on IHI.org. So it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.